Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos HSI familia and welcome back to Que Pasa HSIs. In this episode, we are learning with Carlos Benitez Cruz, who is a doctoral student in the Community and Applied Development Psychology program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Before joining the prog program, Carlos graduated from Dominican University, a small private HSI in Chicago with a BA in Psychology and Study of Women and Gender. As an undergraduate student, they adopted, implemented, and evaluated a 10-week sexual assault prevention program intended to expose students to a community and systems approach to ending sexual assault on campus. Carlos is deeply committed to social justice and organizing communities through empirical research and intersectional critical frameworks, and is going to talk to us today about their experience as a student at two different HSIs. Two colegas recommended Carlos and as, as a guest on the pod, so I know we are in for an abundance of learning and growth today. Carlos, thank you for joining us on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. We're going to jump right in and learn about you. So let's go ahead and start. If you'll just tell us about your servingness journey. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, my, my name is Carlos. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and he, him, his. Uh, and I was raised on the northwest side of Chicago in a community called Belmont Cragen. Um, I'm undocumented. I came to the U.S. when I was four years old. Um, and by the time I was applying to colleges and universities, uh, this question of being undocumented became very salient to me. I didn't really understand what it meant. Um, but I realized that roughly 90% of scholarships were unavailable to me. Growing up undocumented, right, in an impoverished neighborhood with a very poor family, I knew I couldn't afford college. Um, and so one of my college counselors in high school recommended that I apply to the Dream US. Um, it is a national scholarship for undocumented students. Uh, then I had DACA, I was eligible for DACA, and so I was eligible for this scholarship, and I applied to it. Um, and decision day came by and I hadn't really gotten note of any kind of scholarships and I knew what universities had accepted me, but I couldn't afford any of them. Uh, so I then thought that I wasn't going to be able to go to college. Um, and I was very sad crying at the kitchen table with my mom. My mom was holding me. And then I got an email that I had been uh, awarded the Dream US, which then was a full ride. Uh, to just one university uh, because they only offer their scholarships to partner universities. And that university then was Dominican University. So I said, you know what? I'm going to Dominican University. It's a free education that, you know, nothing could be better than that. Um, and then I started off going to school at Dominican University in 2017. Uh, then I didn't know that it was a Hispanic serving institution. I hadn't seen it on any on its on its website or any of its promotional materials. No one had told me it was a Hispanic serving institution. And then I didn't even know what a Hispanic serving institution was. Um, it wasn't until the summer after my freshman year when I was applying to on-campus jobs um, that someone recommended that I apply to El Centro, uh, which was the center that was just starting off and being created by Fanny Lopez Benitez and Lisa Petrov uh, that sought to serve Latino students 
under a Title V grant. And I got to learn that we were a Hispanic serving institution and that we were like 60% Latino. And I was shocked. I didn't know that Dominican had so many brown students. Um, I could see it. I could see there was a lot of Latinos and that's something I noted, but I didn't know that it was a number that high. And it also felt weird that there was a designation for it and the school didn't market it in, in their website. It didn't market it anywhere. And I realized then that something was off. I felt that the institution was ashamed of having so many brown people. And it kind of hit that information uh, from us. And it was then when I started to be mentored by Fanny Lopez Benitez, as I started first my role as scholarship assistant, helping other students get scholarships, um, then helping create uh, La Academia de Familias to help students, right, to help students' families, uh, empower them to help them out um, in their college journey. And then uh, I created a role of like uh, immigration specialist to help other undocumented students kind of navigate uh, being an immigrant um, and like any kind of legal stuff or any kind of DACA stuff that they needed. Um, that's kind of what I did under that role. Uh, and through my time at Dominican, right, uh, under like the mentorship of Fanny and Lisa and other supporters, right, uh, who came along, we pushed right for Dominican to recognize itself as Latino, uh, as Latino serving, and also like push for services for Latino students and other marginalized students. But of course, like that wasn't done without any pushback. Um, there was a lot of pushback and there was a lot of questions. Um, and there's also a lot of fear, right? A lot of white fragility that came along as we uh, tried to really live into being Hispanic serving. Thank you for sharing that beautiful journey and for starting your journey with um, with this conversation around how you actually even picked your institution. I think that's so important because uh, you didn't pick it because it was an HSI. You didn't pick it because there was a lot of Latina students there. Um, but to think about Dream US, uh, Sandy Lopez talked about, um, you know, supporting undocumented students and the, their, their full ride scholarship in an episode in season three. Um, and I think about while well, we're serving as happening, it's organizations like that, right? Like that are advocating mm -hmm. for groups like undocumented students. Um, but that you found your way into Dominican University and you found your way to advocates who were advocating for HSI. Um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing um, some, some of that journey. So when I met you, you were already involved in some of that work, right? You had already become conscious, right? Your, your HSI consciousness had already been ignited. Um, and also, I know you were a little bit uh, frustrated with some of the some of what was going on on, on campus. Um, but I know one of the first things I, I learned about you was that you had been involved with a student organization that was advocating for a cultural center on campus. And when I first visited the campus, the cultural center was not there yet. Y'all were in the process of advocating it. Um, so tell us about that experience, how that all started, how y'all came to advocate, and also what was the ultimate outcome of the advocacy work? Oh, my God. Yes. I'm so glad I get to talk about this. Uh, and this is being recorded <laughs> um, because now it can be kept to posterity for all Dominican students who are fighting really good causes. Um, so trying to remember and trying to put a timeline in this, it must have been my junior year. Um, and unfortunately, and I kind of want to start this out with, I've always been a critical friend to Dominican University, to folks around me, um, in providing an opportunity for reflection, both for myself and folks around me, to think of critical systems, of theory, 
um, and, and really hush against the grain. Um, so I started off because I've always been a quote unquote troublemaker. Um, at Dominican, my junior year, my mentor, Fanny uh, Lopez Benitez, um, decided to leave. And she decided to leave because there wasn't a lot of support for the work that she was trying to do, right? Which was creating support systems for Latino students. In many ways, her work was being pitted against the work of Black women in the institution, right? And this was done um, by and large by uh, white folks, right? Um, there had been folks, uh, folks of color who were convinced, right, that if Latino students uh, got X, Y, and Z, that that would take away uh, from Black student resources. Um, so a lot of scarcity mindset. Fanny had been fighting this for by then three years. Um, she had become exhausted and, and I could see it, right, working with her every day, um, talking to her, her being my mentor, I can see the strain that it was causing, especially because a lot of this work was done on her free time. She wasn't being paid for it. Um, as for like many faculty of color um, and, and staff of color, they're not paid for the work they do with students of color. So Fanny decided to leave. And then I was part of the Undocumented and Immigrant Alliance. It was a student group for undocumented students. It was 30 of us. Um, we understood the repercussions of this. We understood how much we were losing and losing funny, but also how the institution and uh, faculty, uh, particularly like faculty who wanted to keep a white normative space and were really afraid of having an institution change and become racialized, um, how they had not created the space and how we needed a space where we had to work across racial lines and across uh, differences with other students in order to gain the things that we wanted. And this didn't come out of nowhere. It was the same time that PVS released the first Rainbow Coalition documentary um, and that we saw in our home city of Chicago, the power of uniting across racial lines, right? The Black Panthers, the Young Lords and the Young Patriots come together um, in Chicago to rally for support for their communities and, and you know and they're doing it because the structures around them are failing them because the structures around them are for people with money for white people and we thought we could do something similar by uniting across issues so uh undocumented students uh who are me and and some others uh diana hernandez um go to a black student union meeting and we ask them for support Right, we're gonna write a letter to the president. And that letter is gonna ask for a multicultural center. Um, and it, it had like nine demands. Um, and a lot of it was like, you need to find a way to keep faculty of color. You need to find a way um, to hire them. You need to find supports for us. And, and we need centers for us. Right? You need to stop dividing us. And that was a lot of that angst that came from us. It was like, you keep dividing us. It's not the students. It's not um, the faculty of color. There's no scarcity here. There's only threats of scarcity. So we came together and it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. It happened very quickly. It happened within a week. Um, we wrote a letter. We had a student who was a paralegal. Um, her name is Patricia, and she did an amazing job of like getting this letter together and making it sound super fancy. Um, and within five days, we drafted, we reviewed, and we delivered the letter. It was a very dramatic five days, um, and it was very, very emotional, 
right? Because Fani was leaving, because other faculty had decided to leave, because we had lost so many faculty of color and we really felt that the institution was failing us by failing them. Um, and so we, along this letter, right, threatened to protest. Um, and undocumented students knew something that they had, which was that we had power. We had power because the president of the institution, she loved us, right? She loved to show us off, right? Uh, undocumented students then had an average GPA of like 3.94. It was astoundingly high. And we were one of the ways that the institution was able to rally more money from funders by being like, here are some undocumented students that we have provided opportunities for, and they're doing amazing. And so we knew that if we, and we called ourselves her pearls, right? If her pearls went against her, uh, she would clutch onto us and do anything to be on our good side because we were driving money into the institution. And so we told this to Black students, right? We told this uh, to the Latina Coalition. We told this to other Latino students. Um, the Organization of Latin American Students was also involved in this, um, that this was our way to finally get, for the first time in Dominican's history, a multicultural center. But we didn't just want a multicultural center. We wanted a space that could breathe uh, liberation, right? Really give us an opportunity to flourish as people um, and to get resources that we needed. Uh, so we delivered the letter, uh, we threatened to protest. We didn't have to because the president conceded exactly as we thought she would, right? So our analysis of power was so correct that she was afraid that her undocumented students would fly away. And, and also the institution was afraid that black and brown students came together, right? That we were no longer fighting because the 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 narrative then was that black and brown students were fighting against each other all the time. And so neither could get anything because we were keeping each other uh, from it anyway. But when we came together, we got what we needed. And again, like I don't wanna underemphasize that we learned that through the Rainbow Coalition because that was one of the strongest coalitions of independent political parties in Chicago. And it was a radical for us. And it did breed a radical result. Ooh, yes. Oh, that was very emotional. Um, thank you for sharing that. I've heard the story multiple times, but never fully like fleshed out that way with all the details. Um, and from 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 you, right? For the, it was it's your story to tell, right? Like, because I've heard the story and I've never really reshared it. It's not my story to retell, even though I know it, right? Um, I might say things like "fight for a cultural center," you'll get it. I've seen it happen, right? But. That's beautiful. I agree. I'm so glad it's being documented right here. Um, but there's a couple things you said. There's many things you said that I want to like just emphasize. For one, the fact that um, students need faculty and staff of color, and that yeah. when those folks are pushed out, it affects the person and it affects the students. Right? Like if we're talking about servingness and we're pushing people out because people do get pushed out. Right? Um, that funny isn't the first one and and sadly not the last. Right? To be to be pushed out. Um, so I want to make sure we we emphasize that. Right? That our our faculty and staff are not always safe in these institutions and they leave. Right? They feel like they have to leave. Yet they're the only ones it, that are supporting people like you, right? Students like you who really, really need them and who who are, I mean, you called her your mentor, right? That's the person who you went to and she left, right? Because she wasn't in a good space. So how do we better support faculty and staff is such a big thing. But the coalition that you describe, um, Black and, and Latina people coming together, Black and Brown, like solidarity is, that's the, re the reality is that that's our power, right? If we could do more solidarity work 
but we often um, don't see that, right? We don't always see it, um, unfortunately, and or the narrative is that it's not there. Uh, so I love, mm-hmm. I love, 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 right? I love, love that you that you that you shared it in that sort of way, and you had the president's ear, your her pearls. I love that clutching her pearls, right? She's like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna support y'all. Um, but that's also an important piece, right? Of of doing advocacy work because you you need to have that window of opportunity. Y'all had it because you had somebody in power's ear, right? So ultimately, y'all ended up getting a cultural center, right? Yes. And that center uh, became the Center for Cultural Liberation. That's what we decided to name it. Yes. And it's still there and it's still thriving. So um, and so your work, right, your the fruits of your labor, you can see it um, even after leaving. Right. Again, to your point about student advocacy that works when it when you leave and it's still there. Like that's that's pretty cool. Right. For you to be able to 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 see that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. I really, really appreciate it. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about is like, I know you're an artist. I am, I've seen some of your art and I know that, um, you know, being at a liberal arts institution, that's something that, that you're able to maybe bring into, to the curricular structures. But I wanted to know if you were able to bring that into, into your whole self, right? Like, were you able to express yourself through your art, your, all your identities, um, on campus when you were there, like the, were there opportunities in the curricular structure? Did they create that, right? From a servingness perspective, we have to create those opportunities, right? Because you could be an artist and express yourself all on your own, separate from the institution. Um, so were you were you provided with those opportunities when you were there? That's a great question, especially when I reflect about all the creative projects that I did. Um, sometimes I traded papers and I would talk to my professors and they would assign me a paper at the end of the semester. And I'd be like, can I make this into an art project? Um, so it wasn't built into the curriculum. Um, that is something that I remember always asking for. Um, I asked my philosophy professor, I asked my seminar professor, I asked even my study of women and gender, um, advisor, Cristina Perez, if I could like make an art project instead. Um, And what was fantastic is that I never heard a no from them um, because they were so enthralled in different ways that students could express and know themselves and think of themselves and really think of the world. Um, And for me, like art was always kind of this space for theory and praxis to thrive. Um, And and so that's why I sought them so I could express other ways and and like theorize behind like what does it, what does it mean to be undocumented and queer? What does it mean to live in a world where like my story isn't told, my story isn't reflected in the in the media that I see or in the spaces that I walk into, and instead start thinking about like what does it mean to be in this body and envision it, right? And and in white and like in a white supremacist culture, um, we love the written word. We think the written word is all and and that art is somehow like secondary. Um, And I was really happy to be in spaces where the professors, right, where the faculty uh, really leaned into, no, you can thrive as an artist and you can think in different ways. Um, But the institution, I'm unsure, right, if the institution had those structures already in place. Um, And and, in reflecting on these, like I kind of advocated for them. Right. Even as a part of Undocumented and Immigrant Alliance, uh, we created a, a sort of gala every year where we exhibited students' work, right? Because we wanted students to write their own histories and to paint them on the walls, to showcase them. Um, and so a lot of efforts were like art was the center and where art was a place where students could explore who they were and explain 
and, and just kind of live into their humanity through arts, they were created by students. They were created by students. And as was like a lot of things at Dominican, they were created by students. And, you know, and we can't rely on students doing everything. The structures need to reflect a space where students can be free to do the things that they want. And, you know, if as an HSI, like you should be looking to create those spaces. You should be looking to create the structures and uh, that students can express like who they are as humans. Absolutely. And I think that's why I wanted you to talk about that because faculty, um, you know, I'll do a workshop, let's say on, on culturally relevant practices, something to that effect. And, and they're just, you know, it's very limited on what they think that looks like. Right. And like the assignment is a big one. Right. I'm like, well, do you have three essays? Is or is is I, I call it the three essay or the three tests, right? Is that the way you mm -hmm. uh, evaluate, right? Either there's three tests or there's three essays, because that's very limited, right? Like for a student like you, that's like I could express this much better, and you know, through my art, um, and you could still show that you learned whatever it was they wanted you to learn, right? In in a different way, um, so that alternative uh, forms of assessment, I think, is something that I'm constantly talking about, but faculty struggle with it, right? And depending on what area they're in, obviously, um, on how much they can even see an alternative measure, right? Of like, what's another measure of showing that you that you learned whatever it is that we were trying to, to teach you in the class. So, so thank you for talking that through and also the fact that you advocated for that. Cause I mean, we have to also respond to that, right? If mm -hmm. a student asks you for an alternative assignment, do you give it to them? Um, I would say you should, serving this would say, yeah, you should, right? We should absolutely. Um, because maybe the measure we're asking students to live up to isn't the best one, right? For 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 your learning style, right? Or for your way of of communicating what you've learned. So so thank you for that. And if you want to see Carlos's art, uh visit their Instagram page. I visited your Instagram page, it's beautiful. Um, so you developed an evaluation rubric to assess the student advising model that has been created through some of the HSI grants on cap campus. Talk to us about how you created that rubric um, and particularly how you drew from some of the, like HSI theory in order to create this assessment tool. Oh, this is a fantastic question. And this is where like I defer to like your work right uh especially like i have right in front of me transforming hispanic uh serving institutions for equity Yay! and justice yes! um, <laughs> and reading through all your theoretical work in order to see like what is this university doing and in what ways can it serve students better and and the thing that i caught up like got kind of caught up with as i was like developing a theory of change for the advising model um, was seeing that there was a lot of over-reliance on these white normative measures. And even though 65% of the students are students, uh, are Latina students, um, and then also like when you take all students of color, like that's 75, 78% of the student body, there are things outside of that that you also need to advocate for. And, and those things like you called liberatory outcomes, like liberatory measures. Um, other ways of existing and centering students in the world in order to do these things. But even before we can measure liberatory outcomes, the structures themselves have to reflect some kind of consciousness about the people who are coming into the institution. So when I reflected on this and I was creating other uh, theory of change, I realized that what really would cement a liberatory outcome for the individual student was if the structure was racially conscious, right? Conscious of the racial history of their students, 
um, which means like understanding their different walks of lives, the things and the issues that may come in their way, um, and how policies and practices within the institutions can mitigate any harm that they have faced in the past and can mitigate any harm they can face in the future. And alongside that, it needs to be class conscious because a lot of our students are poor students, right? And we can't assume that because a student is brown or black that they're also poor. So we also have to keep poverty in mind and that the policies in place are keeping students there, right? Without a class conscious structure, how do you retain a poor student, right? As um, a, a scholarship assistant uh, uh, advocate in El Centro, one of the toughest battles that we had was with financial aid, with just financial transparency, right? What are the policies in place that are going to give a student a scholarship and what's going to keep them there without that class conscious uh, policy? Because that's what it is. A student cannot know whether or not they can stay in school without the racial uh, or racially conscious policies. Then you don't know whether students can come safely to campus. How many times did I, I personally, like every year got stopped by the police walking between campuses or standing outside. There was a time where I felt like I could jog at 9 p.m. And so I would go jogging at 9 p.m. around the institution. And I felt stupid when the police stopped me to interrogate what me, a young person wearing a Dominican University t-shirt was doing outside of the institution. It was enraging. Right. But if the institution isn't keeping in mind the ways that its students who have brown and black bodies are walking around the institution, the issues that they may face being just around there, then it cannot serve them. Right. It cannot measure them. Uh, so out of that came out of that theory of change was like you really need to cement class and racial consciousness into the structure of the institution if you wish to at all, like create these liberatory outcomes for your students, you know, if you're trying to measure them, that's great. But if they don't, like, they're not in place, then, like, what's going to happen? And liberatory outcomes, like, as you spell out in your book, there are many things that, like, institutions, white normative institutions don't keep in mind, like civic engagement, like racial identity development, um, these other humanizing practices. You know, how is a student engaging in the world? Where do they have agency? Where do they have power? Because for students of color, that's huge. And as I, like, dug at Dominican and what they were doing, I was really disappointed, especially again, in this like class consciousness, um, again, and, and the interconnections between class consciousness and race consciousness, because a lot of what they were doing was making sure that their students could participate in the workforce thereafter, right? It, it, the, the outcome was, can you get a job? The outcome is, can you participate in capitalist society? The outcome isn't like, are you a fully fleshed human being who can now think critically and challenge powers in place? And I know as I say that, that I already come at this work with a bias, right? That education is liberatory, right? But that's what Dominican taught me. That's what Dominican taught me. Every time I stepped into ministry, Dominican University was like, hey, engage in Paulo Freire's work, pedagogy of the oppressed, right? is something important to us. Consciousness raising is important. But if you're just going to raise my consciousness to just tell me that I'm racialized, me telling myself that I'm racialized without really engaging in the power struggle, and instead my education is to get a job and not to change the world, like what is that for? And so again, like without the structures in place that are class conscious and race conscious, what are we doing for our students? 
And I think that's what like that advising model really got me to see. Um, and on that note, like there was a time when Dominican's model was take us to work. My like, I yikes! How demeaning is that to brown people, to black people, take us to work, right? Our parents fight so far for us to get a, an education. We come into a space that tells us liberation is important, and then the outcome is take us to work. That that cannot be right. That is again an institution who's more uh, who's more preoccupied with participating in capitalism than it is in liberating its students, and that's not what an HSI should be, right? I think we do a disservice to our like collective memory um, and to the collective memory of racialized people if everything that we do, even at an HSI or a minority serving institution, is to take us to work. Wow. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, that's powerful. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the neoliberal structures come into play, right? They come into play hard, like some of the things you're talking about. Um, but thank you for bringing in class consciousness too, right? Like, I mean, I don't say that ever in that book, right? But it, you're so right, particularly in the fact that HSIs, um, part of the the designation, the enrollment requires, uh, or actually requires, right? Like that you just show that also your students are what the federal government calls needy, right? But that we would call low income or Pell Grant eligible, right? Um, and that we should be thinking about race and ethnicity consciousness alongside class consciousness um, within our structure. So, so thank you for saying that. Um, and also, it's so good to hear that you are able to translate the the theory, right, into, into a, an assessment measure or practice, which is what I hope. Like some people come to me and they're like, well, do you have a measure for this? Do you have an assessment tool? Do you have a, you know, they want me to produce it. And I'm like, I, I don't have it, <laughs> but I hope that you can take it and translate it. Right. And so to hear that you are able to do that, right. Um, is powerful, right. That I know. Well, that, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll say I, I, I wasn't able to create the assessment tool because <laughs> I was only able to create the theory of change because oh. I was like, I'm like, these are the assessments that you need. Mm. And this is the data that you need to show that you're like engaging in liberatory outcomes and race mm. conscious and class conscious uh, structures. And you don't have them. And why? Mm. Because no one's been thinking about them. Even though, and, and this is like my, my critique to Dominican, even though Gina has been saying this for a while, <laughs> Gina Garcia has come here and told y'all for what, five, six years? And like, y'all need to listen. And now like, I just come back and I say it again. Like I felt when I developed that, I was like, oh, I'm just saying what Gina was saying, but here's a pretty picture. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Ooh, that's good to know. Yeah. So it's like, it's hard to even assess something that's not there, <laughs> right? Like there, yeah, you got to work towards it before you can have that. Um, well, thank you for coming in and just, you know, <laughs> echoing some of the things I said. And some of it is, some of that really is what, what is changing and Dominican university. I got to say, I, I am, what did you call it? A friendly, a, crit a critical friend. friend? Critical friend. I also am a critical friend, right? Like I absolutely loved my time working with Dominican University. But yeah, like every campus um, is struggling through all these different things, right? Um, and and has to work through them one at a time. And change takes time. And sometimes it takes many of us, many voices, right? Because many of us have said the same exact things, I think. Um, so I'm glad, you know, that us and there's probably people now that are even we're not there anymore that that people are saying the same things. 
So one of the other things I wanted to talk about um, and that you know also is in that book, right? In the Transforming HSI book is the mission, right? And I talk about missions being grounded in social justice. You need a mission grounded in social justice. And I talk about it and I talk about it and I say it over and over again and missions are not changing. I will say that's one thing that is not, I do not see happening fast. <laughs> it is not happening quickly. People are not doing it. So what do you think about the limits to social justice at HSIs, um, particularly when when you're grappling with these things that you're bringing up, which is like intersections of identity, right? You've brought in for us class, you've brought in documentation, right? You've brought in um, different identities that go alongside with our racial ethnic identity. Um, so how do we, how, what are the limits, right? To, to saying, hey, there should be social justice in your in your mission, um, and particularly when thinking about like the politics of identity, right? That's all there. Oh my God, the politics of identity. You said that and I'm like, I'm triggered in the way. <laughs> I think just like any other institution, HSIs, and, and this is universities and colleges, unfortunately exist within a neoliberal structure and often are not willing to see it or not willing to question it. And I think first we got to like say, okay, what, what is a neoliberal structure? I think a lot of folks will say it and sometimes will not define it for themselves or folks around them. And for me, it's important to remember two things about neoliberalism. And first, right, it stems from liberalism, which is this idea that hierarchies are normal and hierarchies should continue to exist. This is why we have class hierarchies in a neoliberal society like the U.S., because they started off that way. And alongside um, class hierarchies, we have racial hierarchies, gender hierarchies, uh, hierarchies of sexual orientation and disability. Neoliberalism takes these for granted and wants to keep them. And then the second part is that we do everything for the sake of capital and capitalism. So these are two things that neoliberal institutions are completely attached to, right? At our ones, we produce knowledge um, as a way to gain capital for the institution. At liberal arts universities like Dominican, we produce workers, take us to work. We participate in neoliberalism and we are unwilling to question it. And so HSIs need to question, what does it mean to have this racialized student body whose histories are always going to be attached to colonialism, to capitalism, and whose life projects will always be in tension with liberation. Because that's what we want in a world, right? And when you bring up this question about mission, right, your push for the mission to decolonize missions at HSIs is that they need to enact liberatory, humanizing, and emancipation for their students. And this is something absolutely that HSI should do. And this is work that I have seen a lot of advocates at HSIs like take on, but there's like little faults here and there that they like fall into, little traps I call them. And they're always traps of neoliberalism, right? And one of them is this project of politics. Politics are really difficult at institutions and I understand that. Um, and the way that students are brought to engage in politics, I think is sometimes misguided. So I saw this as an undergrad at Dominican where a lot of the politics were based around identity, right? That somehow being brown or being black or being gay or being undocumented, somehow that identity positioned you in a place to like whatever you wanted, whatever you wish was liberation. And girl, that's not true, right? 
That's not true when we have brown and black capitalists exploiting poor people. That's not true. And so a lot of the things that we were brought to at the institution to engage with um, were surface level like identity politics where like we went and we like yell downtown or we yell at the institution and we don't ask ourselves and no one told us that we could ask ourselves, how do we redistribute power and how do we redistribute wealth? And I think that at HSIs is really, really necessary, right? Redistributing power, what does that mean with our student body? What does that mean when our student body carries the lessons of Paulo Freire's consciousness raising, right? Of, liber uh, of liberation theology, of liberation psychologies. What does that mean when our students carry that into the world? We don't give them the tools. I actually didn't realize that I didn't have the tools to be like a successful organizer because I wasn't asking myself the questions of redistribution of power and redistribution of wealth. I was always asking myself, like, how do I scream the loudest? How do I get heard the loudest? It, because that's kind of how we, what, what HSIs kind of teach you how to do. Um, at least my experience at Dominican, that's what that taught me how to do. Um, and no one really brought me to this question of politics. And again, like I feel it's such a disservice to the history of our students who are Latine, who come from an entire continent of struggle. For the last 500 years, our ancestors have struggled. They have struggled for the right to exist and they have struggled for the right to be free from exploitation exploitation by U.S. imperialism, exploitation by global capitalists, and exploitation of their work in their lands, right? And then I look back at how folks kind of like conjure Paulo Freire, and I keep going back to him, um, because Paulo Freire's work, you know, consciousness racing was always tied to action, but very specific action, right? Paulo Freire like was a social democrat, right? Uh, Ignacio Martin Barro organized the poor and created poor people's parties. At HSIs, like we don't rally for our students to have power. We don't organize them in such a way or, or like give them the tools so that they can go back to their communities and tell their communities and work with their communities to have power. And I think that's one of, the failures in, in raising our students' consciousness because we do it in such a way where we tell them, be proud you're brown and then participate in neoliberalism, right? Participate in identity politics because anything you do because you're brown or black is gonna be wonderful simply because you need to be pretty proud of this identity without questioning power, without questioning hierarchies in neoliberalism and without questioning how wealth moves and who has wealth and who has it. The ironic thing of all this, everything you just said, I'm thinking about, like, you're right. Like we, and, and this is how you're at, we measure, right? Like you're saying, like, we're we're measuring, like Dominican University is saying, if our students get jobs, like bring them to work, right? Like that, that's, that's, we are success, yay, right? But like, the reality is your whole story right now that you're telling us, you're mapping out these, the liberatory outcomes, right? Like if people are listening closely, right? Like you, and some of this you, you had to do on your own, right? Like you did, right? 
but it was part of the, the process of you even being there and the struggle, right? And you and you advocating for different things, even you yelling loudly and then later learning, wait a minute, that's not the way we that's not the way we organize, right? Like we actually have to, there are strategies to movement, why right? we have to think about distribution of, of power. Um and so that's the irony of all this, I think. That's what I'm hearing from your story, right? Is like, yeah, we focus on, in higher, that's higher ed. We focus so closely on all these, like the neoliberal outcomes, the graduation, the jobs, the, you know, did they enroll in graduate school, right? Those sort of things, those those are really important. Um, and we ignore the important um, other outcomes that people are getting. What you're, you really are really talking us through, right? Some of them, um, whether or not you actually realize, I mean, I think it's just me listening, right? Some of the, the liberatory outcomes you got just being there, right? In that space. Some of it was a struggle and some of it was beautiful and all of that led to some of these outcomes, right? But we don't measure them, right? Dominican University isn't touting those things um, as, as, as you as an alum sitting here mapping them out for us, really. And I hope they're listening and thinking through that, <laughs> but but probably not. <laughs> probably not. They tell me as a poster. I'm a poster somewhere on campus. Which isn't good either. <laughs> no one asked. No one asked that my face is plastered in places, and it says social justice. Yeah, also, <laughs> also problematic. Social justice. Yeah, also problematic. We know that. Um, but I just wanted to bring that right to full circle that like everything you're talking about is, is this, this is it, right? This is the conversation, right? The, the development that you, you had there. Um, and yeah, a lot of it was in spite of the institution. Um, but some of it was because of, of even the struggles, right? That, that you were having there. So to wrap it up, is there anything else you would say for anybody listening that's thinking, how do I do better? I'm, I'm here. Like I said, a lot of the people that listen are HSI practitioners. I've got presidents that listen. Presidents tell me they listen on the way to work. Um, so what do you say as, as, a, as, a, as an alum, right, as an undergraduate student who was involved in some of this HSI work? Uh, what are your final thoughts or recommendations? I think we have to really embrace our students' humanity, like at every level of the way um particularly our, our like brown and black students like what is our humanity and what are their hearts guiding them to mm. and as the admins as the staff as the faculty at hsis you need to be unafraid of what mm. that could be mm -hmm. because i think what a lot of folks are really afraid of is the massive power that comes with liberating minds the massive power that comes with liberty minds is that students graduate, they become organizers in the community, mm -hmm. they go to the community, and they liberate minds there too. And that kind of power changes an entire system. And again, like as I mentioned, like HSIs are really afraid of chat, like of of challenging neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. For the last the last six months have really shown that. Mm -hmm. right? They're terrified. Any kind of institution is terrified. And an HSI that does serving this correctly liberates students to seek and act on power and change mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. Yes. Exclamation point, retweet, plus one, all of that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I love all of that. And that that's that's back to the irony is like, yeah, like we're just not willing to to make that the outcome 
right? Of, of HSI. And, and that's what's holding us back, right? That's from holding us back from being fully liberatory spaces, as I call them, right? In the book is like, when are HSIs going to be liberatory, fully liberatory spaces? And we're willing to admit that, right? And, and, and lean into that rather than continuing to leave, lean into what's normative and what's neoliberal about higher ed. So that, that's going to hold us back until we're, until we're willing to do that. So thank you. Thank you for sharing um, your story. I did want to ask you about your current um, institution because you are now a graduate student uh, at University of Illinois, Chicago, also an HSI, not too far from your undergraduate institution. Uh, so in the same city, doing HSI work as well. Do you see any differences there? Is there anything going on there? Like, do they recruit you as like, we're an HSI or is there any any different kind of stuff going on there that you see that was different? Well, I actually, I chose to apply to UIC uh, for my PhD in community psychology, uh, knowing that I would TA and knowing that I would teach and interact with students. Um, so I looked for an institution. I, uh, when I first started looking for schools, that was an HSI or that had a mm -hmm. high population of um, students of color, mostly because I want to really engage folks from the communities I come from. Um, and, and like, that's my quote unquote way of like giving back, but also like participating in that education as liberation and like, let me engage folks who are like me, who like me want to walk a path and want to walk towards a better world. Um, so I sought that, um, in terms of differences, right? Like UIC is an R1 institution with 30,000 students. It's mm -hmm. huge. Dominican is a tiny Catholic institution at the fringes of Chicago uh, with <laughs> 2,000 students on a good day and 600 students who just live on campus. So like everybody knows each other. Like there is no hiding at Dominican. At UIC, nobody knows you. Um, but they're not that different structurally, right? Because they're both institutions that are, again, neoliberal. Um, and because of that, are more worried about how the money comes in, how the money goes out, and if they graduate students. And UIC, in many ways, and I, I hate to say this, but they're a diploma factory. And my interactions with students at times leave me fulfilled in the sense that interpersonally, I have been able to give them the space to seek me as a resource and to trust me as a person. And structurally, like, leave me distraught that they don't know that people care about them, that they don't feel that they're in a place that they are loved. And that is because of how big the institution is, but also, like, it's just filtering students in and out. So in, in those ways, like, it's also failing at students and not engaging them in those critical questions of power and liberation. Um, and I question whether an institution that large could ever do that, whether or not an institution that large should ever be that large, right? Because students need people, right? Like we learn with people. And um, I, I struggle with that at UIC, right? Where, where my students don't know who can help them. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll share this story. Like I had one student who had something horrible happen to them on a Monday, right? Their grandparent passed away and, and they were just filled with anxiety and didn't know what to do. And they waited all week. And on Friday, I taught uh, their class and it was at 3 p.m. We wrapped up at 3.50. And at 3.50, they come over to me and say, Carlos, this thing happened to me. And I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know who to go with. Can you help me? And it's Friday already. And the student is a junior and they've been here for three years 
and they don't know the structures in place to help them because the structures are failing them, right? Of course, the student was like a student of color, right? And, and, and like that for me encapsulates that, that experience there. Like just, it just so happened that they had me. And, and again, like I was shocked that they trusted me with like this horrible thing that had happened to them because I was teaching them math. Right. And I had I had no idea how through math I was able to communicate. I'm here to care for you. But it happened. And I was glad they had me at the very least. But how many students don't? Um, but anyway, that's my take on like the institution as a whole um, and ways that, you know, they're they're not that different. Right. They're they're still mm -hmm. seeking capital. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They're just different sizes and different iterations of it. Ooh, it's interesting to think about that when you say that, um, you know, Dominican University was so small, right? Y'all know everybody. And then now you're this massive place. And I think about that of like it, this, it, this idea of HSI. I'm like a place like so small like that should be able to change quickly, right? Um, and it still takes time because of all this not grappling with structures and power, right? That That is, is happening um, because it's so small. We, we should be able to change. Um, but yeah, a large institution, what research one institution, right? What is its role? What is its identity as an HSI? Mm -hmm. I think you bring up that so important and your story that you tell, it makes me think about, I'm going to always draw on like past episodes, like Joe Lewis, mm -hmm. um, Hernandez in a, in a previous episode talked about how, when you go to jail, you actually get a better orientation than in higher ed. I was like, mm -hmm. oh man. Right. When, when he said that, I was like, what? Right. Like that being incarcerated, you're going to get a bigger or a better orientation into how you should interact while you're incarcerated than when you're in college, right? Mm -hmm. That's a blow to colleges and universities, right? That we don't do a good job. That's exactly what you just told us with the student, right? That we don't do a very good job of taking care of our students, that we just expect everybody to survive, right? And we don't know how to survive. We don't know how to survive in spaces. These are spaces we've never been in, right? So how do we do better about making sure that we're orienting people and welcoming mm -hmm. them? So yeah, it's, it's rough. So I think one of the ways is people find their spaces, right? And they find their people. And I think you did that with the gender <laughs> justice initiative, right? You told me that was your, your, your folks. So do you want to talk about that at all? Share anything that y'all are doing? This is a storytelling space. We might not ever have heard about the gender justice initiative, but you can share, like, what do y'all do in that space? Oh my God. I love my lab. Um, I have found right I'm, I'm i feel very lucky as a phd student to have found i think a lab and also a mentor who like see me as an entire human being um and really like look out for me um so the gender justice initiative it's uh, a lab in the community psychology uh program in the psychology department at uic um, and what we study is how systems respond uh, to gender-based violence. So somebody experiences gender-based violence, they may go to a hospital, they may go uh, to a police department, they may go to uh, a rape crisis, a crisis advocate. We want to know, like, are those systems useful, right? Are those systems really helping survivors get the resources that they need and get whatever they need from those spaces? Um, so right now, right, my my mentor um, and my advisor there is Dr. Jess Shaw, um, who has done this work for a while now. Um, 
And what we are looking at, like our, our recent projects are looking at SANE, so uh, Sexual Assault Nurse Examiners. Um, that's this program within hospitals of forensic nurses um, who are specially trained uh, to respond to victims of sexual violence, right? So they do the forensic exam, but they do it in the trauma-informed lens. Um, and through that, like we know the justice system, well, the quote-unquote justice system, the criminal legal system, um, isn't that great to survivors, right? But this on the way there is sometimes works um, as uh, procedural justice, right? They feel cared for, they feel seen. Um, survivors, right? Survivors feel cared for, survivors feel seen, survivors feel listened to, survivors feel that somebody acknowledges the harm, right? After it happens. And it's usually like these nurses. Um, so we wanna like find out what systems are working, what systems are not. And, you know, as you've heard me, like, you're like, Carlos, that is so different from everything else that you do. And for me, it's like, it's not. Because in these orientations, like, we believe survivors, we reject the lies of white supremacy. We just reject these patriarchal systems that are oppressive systems that are created by what? Colonialism. That are created by what? Racism. Right? And so for me, like, working with survivors and, like, trying to change systems, it's the same work that actually I'd look at HSIs. I'm like, that's a system that we're trying to change. For again, people who have experienced a lot of harm, right? For me, all the orientation, right? All of it is the same. Um, so yeah, I have found my people, wonderful, wonderful folks in my lab who are just beautiful, beautiful people um, and who really believe in creating a better world. And you know, our belief is that sometimes you can do that through social science, right? Sometimes social science is a way to social justice. Um, and and that's why I'm really excited to be doing the work I'm doing with uh, the Gender Justice Initiative. Yes, I love it. Oh, you're absolutely right. Like, there's so many systems we need to change, right? Like, I talk about HSI, that's one system, right? There's so many systems, right, that, like, need to be disrupted. They're all grounded in colonialism, and they're harming us. They're harming us. They're harming us. The most minoritized in, in our communities are, are being harmed, so... Absolutely. And yes, to so, to social science being social justice work. Um, that's scholar activism, right? That's where that, that term scholar activism comes from, is that we know that research is pushing, right? It is an advocacy. Um, it's not, we're not out there yelling and organizing and screaming in the streets necessarily, um, but we're using our research, right, to, to, to enact change. So absolutely, it's absolutely um, grounded in social justice. So Keep doing that work. Uh, can't wait to see what comes of it and what else you you do. Uh, thank you for being here and for for you know sharing your story and for for just giving us so much insight. I really appreciate it. So before you get out of the pod, you have to answer the final question. The name of the podcast is a question, and so the final question for every guest is "Qué pasa HSI?" So how do you how do you respond to that when you hear that? Girl, you where is the liberation? I think that is my question to HSIs is where is the liberation? Where is our praxis? Um, where is our justice? And that's what's up. Thank you for being here today on Que Pasa HSIs.